If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. it makes for a great story. You know, this is such a dramatic period of history. You have to have heroes, you have to have victims, and you have to have villains. That was Laura Mackay on the dramas of the Tudor court. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, section editor at BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing an interview I did at BBC History Magazine's History Weekend in Winchester last year with the author and historian Lauren Mackay. Lauren is the author of Among the Wolves of Court, the untold story of Thomas and George Boleyn. So we met to discuss the tumultuous lives of the father and brother of one of the Tudor era's most famous figures, Anne Boleyn. Most people will have heard of George and Thomas as the brother and the father of Anne Boleyn. But to start us off, can you introduce them to us as men in their own right? 
Absolutely. The Berlin story actually traces back centuries before Anne Berlin was even a blip on the radar, as it were. Uh, we know that they come from East Anglia. Uh, their family uh, built uh, their success on generation by generation over the centuries. We're going back to at least the 12th, 13th century. There was a little bit of crime to begin with, but then they got a lot better and a little bit more noble. Uh, so when we actually come to Thomas Boleyn as a young man, he actually begins his career in the king's army. So he's a military man to start with. Uh, he then decides to actually go into more of a peaceful uh, career path. So he becomes a courtier at Henry VIII's court and Henry VII's court as well. And he follows in his father's footsteps, his grandfather's footsteps. His grandfather was the mayor of London, for example. So he already has quite a pedigree. Um, he then becomes an ambassador for Henry VIII, uh, one of the first diplomatic missions of Henry VIII's reign in 1512. So he's, you know, by, long before Anne Boleyn even comes on the scene, Thomas Boleyn builds up a career as a very successful ambassador and diplomat and special envoy. By the time Anne comes on the scene, he's already been right-hand man to Thomas Wolsey. You know, he's a man of station, of wealth, of, in of integrity as well and reputation. And of course, when George comes into it much later, you know, we have to remember that George really only begins to appear in the sources in about 1524, and his first diplomatic mission is in 1529. By that point, we have to remember that his family is already well established. He's a young man with prospects. A lot of us, I think, come to the Tudors through TV film and historical fiction. Yes. So Wolf Hall, The Other Boleyn Girl, yes. The Tudors, the, yes. the big series, of course. Um what kind of a impression has film and TV given of Thomas and George? And has it been accurate? Uh, no, <laughs> to start with. Uh, the problem is that the, the history feeds into the fiction and the fiction feeds back into the history. It's like a vicious cycle, actually. So the historical interpretations come from sort of the Victorian historians' interpretations. And I guess it makes for a great story. You know, this is such a dramatic uh, period of history. You have to have heroes, you have to have victims, and you have to have villains. For some reason, Henry VIII never seems to be the villain. It's always when it comes to Anne Boleyn. And of course, the tragic story of her, of her, of her rise and fall, the men in her life become the villains. And it's really unfortunate. And, and definitely in the portrayals, you know, you miss so much about the Boleyn men in, let's say, the Tudors. Uh, you really only have Thomas Boleyn as power hungry and George as an, an abusive, you know, oh gosh, it goes on with George, of course. Um, and for, you know, Wolf Hall is a beautifully and artfully constructed saga. And Hilary Mann is a fantastic author, but she eviscerates the Berlin men in only a few lines. That's all it takes. Centuries of this uh, of building up, you know, very interesting lives, and it only takes a couple of lines to really just destroy them. So what are some of the nuances that we are missing about Thomas and George? Well, for example, Thomas was a real family man. He was dedicated to his parents, dedicated to his mother in particular. You know, it's interesting that uh, he actually brought his mother down with him from Blickling, where the family estate originally was, down to Heva, and she lived there all her life. And we have household records where he has, you know, he's always buying new fur for her dresses. He's always sending, um, you know, hogsheads to Heva for his mother. And he actually stipulated in his will that after his death, she was not to be moved until she lived out the remainder of her days. I, he's absolutely dedicated to his mother. She is one of those kind of formidable women, kind of like Margaret Beaufort and Henry VII. She really advises Thomas a lot in his youth. Um, and she also helps arrange his marriage in, into the powerful Howard family. She, you know, so this is an extraordinary uh, relationships that we miss. And also in terms of spirituality and religion, you know, we always lump Thomas Boleyn in with uh, the reformists, but actually he's a man of uh, very conservative, old 
old-fashioned spirituality. And we can we can see that in his relationships with Desiderius Erasmus, the great humanist philosopher. You know, there he was a great patron of Erasmus, and an Erasmus really respected him and actually called him egregious eruditus, meaning outstandingly learned. So these are the kind of nuances about Thomas. With George, absolutely, it's the fact that you know, we shouldn't look at him as rather as, as this young man who profits from his sister's liaison, but a young man who is actually shackled to a political cause he can't really escape. And by that, I mean Anne's desire to be queen. In fact, rather than see him as a sort of, me- you know, uh, an ambassador, he's he's almost like a glorified messenger. He is completely underutilized by, by Henry VIII. And it's unfortunate. In fact, if we put Anne aside, if Anne had not been there, George would have had a really glorious career. But we don't really consider that, of course. The reason why we we are even discussing Thomas and George is because um, Anne is such a towering figure in in the Tudor saga. Can you tell us a bit about Thomas and George's relationship with their daughter and sister, Anne? It's difficult because we don't, you know, we're very demanding of people who lived in the 16th century. I think we want them to always write prolifically and legibly and with an eye to posterity and personal insights are are always uh, desirable. But we don't really have a lot of evidence of a relationship between the three of them. Uh, With Anne and Thomas, all, all we really have is one letter written by Anne in 1513 from Margaret of Austria's court. And it's a lovely letter. Uh, she's obviously, she wants him to be proud of her and what she's doing. And she's doing so well in French. She's actually not doing that well in French. Her French is terrible in the letter. Um, but, and what I think people, we, don't, we often don't really think much about this letter, except that this letter survived Thomas's life. It was found among his papers, perfectly preserved, and we still have it. It's like, well, what does that say about their relationship? Clearly, he adored his daughter. Clearly, he was proud of her. He loved her. And I think sometimes we have to read between the lines and look at what evidence we have. Now, with George and Thomas, it's difficult. We know that, of course, um, he must have been very proud of his son. He steps in and helps his son a lot when he needs his father's, uh, you know, diplomatic input. As for George and Anne, of course, they're very, very close siblings. They share very similar aesthetic tastes. George actually translates. He commissions and translates beautiful uh, humanist texts, French humanist texts for his sister. So even in the absence of letters, we have prime examples, which we need to really hold on to as key examples of their of their you know affection for each other and of their close bond. Anne was not the only Berlin woman to end up in Henry VIII's bed. Before her he had an affair with her sister Mary. Yes. I think a lot of people have seen this as evidence that Thomas Berlin was essentially farming out his daughters yeah. to to win royal favor. Yes. But you have a slightly different take on that. We have to remember that, you know, Henry doesn't necessarily reward his mistresses, let alone his mistresses' families. Uh, it's just, it's not really done. They they are serving a purpose. It's there's no reward and, and no real gain to be had. And as and you know, by 1523, let's say when Mary Boleyn catches Henry's eye, I mean Thomas Boleyn is already a very successful ambassador. He's already on the rise. Now it's easy to link his successes, especially the uh, the Viscount Rochford in 1525, and of course the Order of the Garter. But as I, as I say in my book, you know he, his induction into the into the Order of the Garter was on the cards the whole time. He comes from a family, who all who have been inducted. His grandfather was in the order. His uncle is in the order. I mean, it goes on and on. So, I, you know, it's it's easy to, to see uh, Thomas's 
uh, gains and, and all of the advantages that he receives. But I think sometimes we read the story backwards because we know how it ends. So we tend to sort of, he, we, we like to put signposts into the narrative. It's just not that simple. Could you tell us, though, a bit about Thomas's role in Anne's rise? The most important uh, thing that he really did in terms of facilitating her rise was making sure that she had the best education that she could. And that involved, of course, uh, securing her place in Margaret of Austria's court in Mechelen. Of course, that was one of the most sophisticated courts in Europe, visited by some of the Europe's most highly revered scholars and philosophers and musicians and poets. So this uh, was an, edu- an education like no other for, you know, not many English women could would should really boast such an education. So there's definitely that. Uh, of course, you know, when he, when she's in the French court uh, years later, he is also happens to be at the French court. I think he also takes care of her there. They, he, he does rent out uh, very large rooms in Poissy, just near the court, and I believe that she stayed with him. I think he keeps an eye on her in the French court. In terms of other evidence, it's very, very difficult because by the time Anne, you know, comes, you know, is even really mentioned in the sources, there's been a lot going on behind the scenes that we can't possibly know. In terms of facilitating her rise, I, I like to separate, you know, there's people will talk about facilitating her her rise to queenship. I don't think he did that in any way. I don't, you know, Thomas Boleyn is a very cautious man. By the time, well, Henry is even considering Anne as queen, we have to remember that he has cultivated a very careful reputation over a few decades. He's he's not a betting man. He's not going to sacrifice all that for the, the possibility that perhaps Henry might depose his queen. I think we have to distinguish between, are you asking, did, she, did he facilitate her rise to queenship or to be a woman of learning, of education and a desirable match for the nobility? That's what he facilitated. You're suggesting here that he was essentially doing what any courtier would do. Absolutely. Ambition, it's funny. Ambition only seems to be a dirty word when we link it to the Boleyns. I mean, of course, is it is it not every family's... I mean, then and now, I think everyone can relate to this. It is the family's ambition to build upon the success of the former generation and improve upon it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Now, I think we... I think, you know, Anne becoming Henry's mistress and queen sort of muddies the water there. But the trajectory, I think, that Thomas always envisioned was like he did and like his father and grandfather before him marry into noble families and ensure the prosperity of their progeny. It's that simple. It does have quite an interesting um, story to tell, though, about the role of women in noble families at the time and the way in which they could be used almost as pawns by Absolutely, for sure. It's interesting because actually the women in, in Thomas's family are not uh, taking out Anne and, and his and his children. The women in his family are not pawns. His mother was, as as I said, in a, in a very formidable woman. She was the power broker of the family. His grandmother was the same. I mean, he does come from a line of very strong women. I think he also marries a very strong woman, Elizabeth Howard. And I think actually he intends for his children to be much like the the women who have come before them. I think we can see in Anne a certain uh, personality trait there and a characteristic. She is very strong willed. And even her father can't really control her. Not that I think that he he tries to, but I think sometimes he tries to advise her. And she is thanks, Dad. I'll take that on board, and I'll do I'll do it my way. Um, but I think that's that's something that I think he's probably he was probably proud of because she's absolutely uh, a prime you know an absolute Berlin. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Moving on to George, Anne's brother. What do we know about him from the sources that might be a bit revelatory that you've discovered? Um, I suppose when we look at his marriage to Jane Parker, for example, as being very, very unhappy, and especially in fiction, it's, it's kind of been, it's been twisted into something very ugly, that he was abusive and he indulged in multiple homosexual relationships. And none of this comes out in the evidence. That, and certainly in his own time, he was never viewed as such. Um, so certainly this idea that he was unhappy, I think it needs to be sort of rectified because he, you know, he and Jane Parker were young. They were probably optimistic about their future. She came from a good family. Her father, Henry Parker, was a, a very respected translator and ambassador. I think they had everything to look forward to. I think certainly complications arose, but we should, you know, we need to stop looking at George as, as this monster. It's funny, my PhD super, um, supervisor said at the end of my thesis, she said, we've really made monsters of these men, haven't we? And it's true, we have. And I, I don't even, I don't really even know kind of how the perception of George has shifted over the centuries. It's interesting. Um and also, I think with George, this idea that, you know, he was uh, preening and well, I think in Wolf Hall, I think uh, someone says or Cromwell says, you know, what is the point of George Boleyn? I think that really encapsulates how everybody feels. There's so much more to him. There's, a, as I said, there's a real spirituality. There's, this is a man capable of very, of very uh, sensitive ideas as well. And I think he's, you know, he's very influenced by the the the, white, the broader European religious uh, tides that are turning. And I think that's something that we don't often think about with George, for sure. You mentioned there that there's a lot of speculation about George having homosexual relationships, yes. and also, of course. Um, Famously, he was accused and found guilty of incest yes. with his sister Anne. Yes. How did all these rumours or stories emerge around George? It's a million dollar question. Uh, it's funny because in his lifetime, as I said, there's no, there's no, nothing to do with homosexuality. It's, it, you know, this kind of comes about decades, well, centuries later, really. I think it starts with um, the fact that uh, there's a poem written by uh, Descartes and, it, and it, it, it talks about the executions of the men. And there are a couple of phrases here in there, and I, I, won't, <laughs> I won't go into them, they're a little bawdy, but historians have interpreted them as maybe there was some evidence that he was quite... Uh, quite a promiscuous young man. There's also this idea that there's a, there's a book which he wrote, this book is mine, George Berlin, and there seems to be some initials and mine, I think, MS. And, and some people have taken that to be Mark Smeaton. It is such flimsy evidence that I can't quite believe it's ever found its way into history. Uh, but you know what? Again, it makes for a good story, but it, it, it comes from nothing. We really have built a straw man here. There's, there's, there's absolutely no foundation. And it's a shame because that's what we t- tend to remember him. And it's it's a false impression. How do you think then that George ended up on the 
on the executioner's block. Well, he had to. I think, you know, when when we're looking at uh, probably the way Cromwell is seeing the situation and, uh, you know, George Boleyn is a powerful young man. He's outspoken. He's influential. Uh, and he's part of that young crowd. I think if you're going to, ha- if you're going to get eliminate Anne, you're going to have to eliminate everyone around her, those young men. Uh, inter- interestingly enough, of course, the older generation were not a target of the purge. It was, it was simply, you know, Anne and these young men around her. Uh, but I don't think you could get rid of one Boleyn and leave the other. That would be, you know, you've got to cut, cut the head off the snake, as it were. Um, you know, he's too powerful to be left alive, I believe. And also, I don't think um, Thomas Cromwell particularly liked George. They had a very fractious relationship, especially towards uh, in their later years. Uh, I think it's funny because Cromwell and Thomas Boleyn got along very, very well. They worked together well for years. But I think Thomas Cromwell found George to be arrogant and a bit of a know-it-all. And uh, he kept an eye on George and George didn't like that. He didn't like kind of being bossed around by anybody. So the fact that George was accused of incest mm. seems a very very strong um accusation yes. it's not it's not just treason they it- had to find a charge that was so depraved and so you know, to, to blacken his name to such a degree that he could never come back from it. Treason, you know, I don't know, treason's, treason's fine, but I think that that was just something that would forever tarnish the Boleyn reputation, and it has. Anne and George were both executed in 1536. What impact did this have on Thomas, and what happened to him after his children had had such ignominious end? Yes. Interestingly, you know, we have to remember that Thomas is of an older generation. He was there long before his children. Uh, and he's he's well known and respected enough that, you know, he he leaves court, I think, with his wife, and I think they bear their their grief in private in Hever. Now, he we don't really hear much of him throughout fifteen for the rest of the fifteen thirty six. He does receive a letter uh, from Cromwell that during the Pilgrimage of Grace, uh, that he needs to organise two hundred men to to march, and he actually Thomas, you know, he's probably got other things to think about it <laughs> so soon after his children children's death, um, and he and he complains to Cromwell that he only actually received the the letter I think eight days after it was sent, giving him three days to assemble the troops. I don't know if this was done on purpose. It's, it, it would be interesting to kind of, you know, to find out if Cromwell sent the letter when he said he did or if there was some kind of, you know, if this was designed to humiliate Thomas. I don't know. But, you know, it, it speaks volumes of the respect that he that he has earned in his own county because he musters those troops and he marches to London in three days. Now, they're not needed in the end. They're not actually needed. But it's funny. It's interesting that, of course, Thomas is then on the jury for the, the trial of Robert Ask and the other... Uh, the other uh, rebe- um, the rebels for the pilgrimage of grace, but we have to remember that even though his children are dead, Thomas is still the Earl of Wiltshire. He is still part of the nobility. He still has duties, whether he wants to act them out or not. He is still bound to the court and to serve the king. You can't escape that. That's a that's a life membership. Uh, and then we have, I think, a couple of little rumors about him. He's his minstrel is is caught singing derogatory songs about the Duke of Norfolk, and Norfolk complains to Cromwell rather than actually complaining to his own brother-in-law. So it kind of suggests a bit of fractious relationships now. Things are falling apart between Thomas and the men who he used to rely on and trust, his own family, his brother-in-law. He does come back to court briefly and there's a and there's some rumour that he might marry Margaret Douglas. Of course, Margaret Douglas is the king's niece. It is so un, it is so un, unimaginable. It's it's you know, it's absolutely fanciful. So we know that's not really the case. Um but really, he he spends a lot of time down in Hever by himself. So I think he sort of turns to the more spiritual elements of life. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have 
a whole lot. He's lost two children, two of the brightest stars of court. So I don't know what we expect him to do. I don't know what we kind of expect from him. And we maybe we, I think some historians say he climbs the greasy pole back at court, but he doesn't. He's, he's, he is angry. And, and you can see that in a lot of his letters to Cromwell when he's, he's ordered to lend Cromwell his best, his garter badge for the Order of the Garter. He lends it to Cromwell, but he says, I'm doing this for the king's pleasure alone. And he, and crucially, he doesn't even attend the garter meeting to induct Cromwell. Cromwell into the order. Now, he should have been there. That's his duty. But I don't think he could bear it. I think there is such uh, such an, uh, an unrest in his soul. So it's interesting. What do you think, looking at the Boleyn's uh, kind of family saga and relationships, can tell us about the Tudor court more generally? The Boleyns are not unique in any way. They were a respectable family. As I said, they Built, they crafted their reputation over generations, like every other family. I think I think that's really the what we have to remember is that there's nothing there's nothing special in their story. It's only that Henry happened to notice Anne, want to marry her, destroy his almost destroy his country in the process in order to have her. Uh, so I think I think you know we just have to, we have to just remember that it was the circumstances that really changed. It's not that the Boleyns were somehow were somehow different from everybody else. This was the you know the court was. Like a stock exchange for courtiers' personal advancement. This was this was where everything happened, and you either played that game or you got out, and it was really that simple. Why do you think that people are still so fascinated by this family's drama? I think it's just because it, it was it's so unprecedented. There's no other story. It's unique. I think Hilary Mantel says it's unique to its time and place. There was, there's never been another circumstance in which this, I mean, th- th- this has really happened where uh, an anointed queen has been deposed in, in order, of, you know, to, to, to make way for someone else. Um, and then there's a, you know, a family in, in, a, in an impossible position. And they have they have risen so high and they have fallen they fall so far. I don't know. So, certainly, as as an historian, I find you know it's in, it's incredible to be able to see the arc of someone's life from their birth to their death and be able to sort of almost hold it in your hand like this is what happened. This is who this person was. I think we tend to see it as a drama, as the drama it is. We see it from its beginning. We see where it ends, and we almost become desensitized to the reality of it. It becomes this kind of romantic story with this violent ending. A lot of the time, the way that we talk about the Berlin men, kind of takes some of the agency away from Anne. So we say, Anne got to where she was because her father yes. uh, manipulated yes. behind the scenes and her yes. brother, um, you know, created this great social scene around yes. her. But really, if we think of them in the way that you're suggesting... Um, it actually places more emphasis back on Anne and being Absolutely. an agent of her own Because destiny. otherwise, as you say, we, we rob her of her political ingenuity, all the things that, that made her so fascinating. They were really there. She really was a very powerful and influential woman. She was, was quite an extraordinary character. She's really the star billing in their kind of scene in media res, as it were. Uh, so I think sometimes we just have to separate them. They were entwined, but they, they're worth viewing in themselves. You mentioned... You think this is possibly going to cause a bit of a stir, this new take on the Berlin man. Why do you think that is? A lot of people come to the Tudors through fiction. So we all have our, our, you know, our our set ideas and perceptions. So, I mean, for a lot of people, you know, Thomas More is always going to be Paul Schofield in in the, you know, the brilliant uh, saint. And I think for a new generation, Cromwell's always going to be Mark Rylance with his, you know, far-gazing stares and all of that. And I think... Uh, through for Thomas for Thomas and George, uh, 
you know, it, it's controversial because they are, you know, their, their reputation is so entrenched as, as you said, the callous and scheming father and the the ruthless and cruel and 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 preening brother. And I think it's going to be, it, you know, it's always going to be a bit of an uphill battle to really break through those stereotypes. And that's what that's what makes the challenge so worthwhile. That was Laura Mackay. Her book, Among the Wolves of Court, The Untold Story of Thomas and George Berlin, is available now, published by IB Taurus. We've reached the end of today's podcast, but we'll be back on Monday when I'll be speaking to Mark Morris about medieval castles. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library. 